I think Vigi Swap describe it as the best. It is like being wrapped up in a big gay blanket. And that's how I feel when I read his books. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Okay, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I am Mark, and I'm once again joined by our book friends, Virginia, Gabriel, and Corrine. For this episode, we're going to be talking about Pride Month a little bit. Our books are all going to be LGBTQ themed or have LGBTQ characters in some uh, way represented within the story, narrative, life story, depending on if anyone's doing a biography, there may be some of those as well. So just to start, I wanted to give like a little postcard overview of the history of Pride Month. Pride Month is marked every year in June to honor the 1969 Stonewall Uprising in Manhattan, which occurred after a police raid of the Stonewall Inn, a club frequented by many local gay, lesbian, and transgender people. Having suffered constant harassment and poor treatment from the police and the rest of society, there was six days of protests and riots that followed. And this is sort of often referred to as like the beginning of the modern LGBTQ plus movement. Since then, it's sort of become like an international sort of touch point for pride celebrations. Many international pride celebrations take place in the month of June across the world. Except for in Vancouver, we still stick with the very end of July and August because Vancouver likes to be different in that way for some reason. Always kind of surprised when you think about Vancouver and BC. It's just a little bit off from a lot of other places. Just to sort of get like an early idea of what pride sort of meant to the people at the time was there's an activist from the 1970s, Aubrey Walter, who said gay pride meant that the homosexual individual no longer accepted the heterosexist society's definition of him, her as criminal, pathetic, or sick. It meant that at long last, the lesbian and gay man could raise their heads with the deep inner conviction that homosexuality was part and parcel of the human package. Seeing the roles imposed on men and women by the present sexist society as perverse rather than the homosexuals that reject them. And so there's this quote sort of illustrates the pride and liberation were sort of key to advocating their sense of identity, justice, and change. But at the same time, the early activists didn't really mention like gender, non-binary identities, transgender identities. And that's sort of become a more key sticking point today for representation, inclusion, and the different kind of ways that that may take shape. So for example, a lot of Indigenous people today may use the term like two-spirit or queer to sort of uniquely Indigenous kind of identity within the LGBTQ community and sort of as a way to push back against more Western or colonial anthropological definitions of Indigenous sexuality and gender identity. And just over time, you can think about the changes in laws, uh, the perception of people, our understanding of identity, and the kind of support that people now receive rather than being rejected for who they are. That's not to say that there isn't still prejudice and systemic issues that need to be addressed in terms of inequalities and stigma and other things like that. But Pride Month is just sort of meant to highlight this history and the progress that's been made. And just to sort of tie it back to books and libraries. So for example, libraries have tried to represent themselves as more open to like anti-censorship, to uh, represent all materials. And you can sort of see this today with some of the challenges that are happening to LGBTQ related materials. 
as libraries have tried to push back against this idea that children or young adults shouldn't be reading about gender and sexual identity. The issue of identity and pride related to libraries is also there. So it's good to make that connection on this kind of podcast in a library as well. Because I wouldn't be surprised if there's a number of people who first read a book or rented a DVD with like characters, LGBTQ characters from a library because they just never encountered it or because they couldn't get it anywhere else. So just to, I'm going to get the existential question out of the way early on, because I know there's a lot of hand wringing over this question when I thought about the idea of it. So just to ask everyone, what's a standout LGBTQ plus character from any work of fiction? It could be biography, like anything that you've read in like a media form that stood out to you. So I think mine um, is actually from one of my my favorite book series, which is The Raven Cycle by Maggie Stiefvater. And one of the characters in that, Ronan Lynch, is probably one of my favorite characters. He's a joy to read. At least in the original series, there has been since like a new series that has begun in that universe called Call Down the Hawk. I haven't actually read Call Down the Hawk yet. It's been on my to-read to list for a while. And in the original series at least he's technically unlabeled but he's portrayed very much as being if not a gay man then at least further leaning towards a man who likes men as opposed to being necessarily like a bisexual character or pansexual or any of those identities so he doesn't really necessarily like call himself that but some of the books have his sort of realization of his feelings for another character in it. And I just really like Ronan. And so it was less about, I think, his identity, although that was a plus in terms of representation. And also he has a great romance plot, but really it's mostly just because he's a little delinquent and I love him. So Ronan Lynch. Thank you, Gabriel. So my example is um, the characters Mike and Scott from the film My Own Private Idaho by Gus Van Zandt. For me personally, I actually don't remember this film particularly well. I remember the broad outlines of it, but when I was younger, I didn't really read books very much. I read a lot more now than I used to, but so through film, I actually sort of had that initial sort of exposure to LGBT characters. And I just remember the struggles of these two characters and their relationship and with their families and those around them and their sort of struggles with inequality and to survive between this one's more upper class, one's more lower class. And just this sort of dynamic between the two characters is something that really stands out to me many years after I first saw it. And it was also definitely one of the first times I saw any of these kinds of characters in anything, really. I'm going to choose something a little bit more recent that I think is just like, oh, it's it's so wonderful and so sweet and kind of so amazing that, you know, from when maybe I was a teen such a thing would never have been possible to even be made, to have been published. Like it, it just wouldn't, couldn't have existed in, in that time. And I'm so happy that it exists now is the graphic novel and the television show Heartstopper by Alice Osman features a wonderful, a wonderful, beautiful rainbow of characters. Um, some of whom are trans, there are lesbians, there are gays, there are bisexuals. And it's just a really sweet, 
love story. Like it is just the normal story of, of two people kind of meeting each other and then beginning to appreciate each other and then falling in love. And, and that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story between Nick and Charlie and, and it, it exists, it's there and it's, it's wonderful and it's fabulously queer. And I just, I'm just so, so happy that this generation and the next generation to follow get to kind of experience those those stories now. So yeah, yeah. that's my pick. And weirdly enough, I'm also talking about a like a love story couple, which never, ever, 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 ever. But I will read anything by TJ Klune. So any characters that he comes up with, it's always the best for me starting with Arthur and Linus in the House of the Cerulean Sea, which of course we talk about like a thousand times on this show. But I think Vigi Swap describe it as the best. It is like being wrapped up in a big gay blanket. And that's how I feel when I read his books always, because it is just the sweetest thing, just like Corinne And I don't do sweet. I don't do heartwarming, but I just can't help. It is infectious. Any characters they come up with, even like the other book, Under the Whispering Door, when like you meet this accountant who's just so mean-spirited, but, you know, somehow it turns into somebody that you just like, oh, you know, and then you just love seeing that relationship develop in all his books. So, yeah, for me, definitely any of TJ Klune characters, um, but Arthur and Linus will probably be, for me, the most memorable ones. All right. Thank you, Virginia. Um, so I guess we'll just move on to our book recommendations then. I'm just going to, I'm going to stick with the same order we did the existential questions. in. so I'm going to say Gabriel can go first. All right. I get voluntold. So <laughs> what I read for this month is do, 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 gender failure by Ivan E. Coyote and Ray Spoon. So the first time that I encountered gender failure, it was actually given to me by a non-binary coworker shortly after I'd come out to them. I only had a few weeks left before the end of my contract, and I had come to them asking for advice. They were sort of the prickly sort. And so when they emailed me asking me to come down to their office, I wasn't sure what to expect. <laughs> but it was this. They gave me their well-loved, well-marked copy of Gender Failure and told me that if any harm were to befall this book, <laughs> there would be consequences. So, unfortunately, I only read a few short sections of gender failure before I had to return it, because I was in the middle of moving provinces. What I had read sort of scared and comforted me and made me laugh and cry, and I really wasn't ready for all of it. But when I saw that Pride Month was on our list of topics, I knew it might be the time to revisit it. So, over a year later, Ariel, I'm reading it. Be proud of me. I did it. I was actually, initially for this podcast episode, going to read Outlawed by Anna North. And I realized pretty quickly uh, that even though she intended it, the book is very trans-exclusionary. And so this is kind of like an overcorrection in the opposite direction. Because the world that she created, I think she was trying to do something with it that did not happen. That sometimes you'll see in... Um, different different genres so that one's a western but you'll see it often in cyberpunk and things like a lot of questions about like the world that get, that end up in a very gender essentialist sort of awkward turfy <laughs> narrative and i didn't want that so here i am with gender failure instead 
So Gender Failure is based on a live show from Coyote and Spoon, which featured music, storytelling, anecdotes, other forms of performance. Uh, And in book form, this kind of manifests in short essays and stories from the two creators, both of whom consider themselves gender failures. And in Ray Spoon's case, gender retired. So I had two quotes from it that I found that were both kind of heartwarming and distressing, but I picked these just because I think it shows some of the emotional and humorous range this book has. And the first one is just this. Older butch sightings in airports make me feel like I'm part of an army. A quiet, buttoned-down, peacekeeping brigade that nods instead of saluting. Silver hair and eye wrinkles are earned instead of stripes or medals. And I love that imagery. I, I, I love the idea of sort of like the solidarity and the community that both of them have experienced over the years and how they can kind of talk about it. And the other one's this. So, so, 19 years I have been binding. Yes, thank you. I realize some of you are thinking, holy F, saran wrap, that dude is old. And that's okay by me. Both of them, <laughs> very, very different, very different energies. But there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of the realities of what it's like to be a gender failure, in, in their words, or like a non-binary individual. The book is raw and confusing at times. One thing that I think it does well is that it really doesn't claim to be anything other than the experiences of Coyote and Spoon. They know that to prescribe one experience to all trans or non-binary people would be kind of counterintuitive. And they talk about their experiences as children, with the media as performers, with elders in the queer community. They talk about what the Trans Day of Remembrance means to them in a particularly uh, emotional passage. They talk about binders and cowboys and the different transitions that you might experience in life, whether that be through gender or just in general, and how good it feels not to have to explain yourself. It's also a very Canadian book. So Coyote's from Whitehorse, Yukon Territory, although they currently live in Vancouver. And Spoon is from Calgary, but currently lives in Victoria. So some of the stories in the book do come from time spent in BC. Their experiences are really partially based on these places they come from. Ray Spoon came from a Pentecostal family, and so you can add some religious trauma into the mix. And they discuss everything from like the arbitrary gendering of girls versus boys in school, uh, the way people address you as a performer, whether that be like uh, in the news, but also after shows, the way that people will approach you and you'll realize whether or not they really got the performance, whether they understood what was happening, and just the way that you can casually find yourself at risk on a daily basis. They do all this with humor and grace and a deep reflection of how they both move through a world that doesn't quite understand them. There isn't a lot of dwelling on moments or scenes or action in the way that maybe like a traditional biography or memoir might have, which might take you out of it if that's not really the sort of thing that you like to read, if you prefer it to have a bit more structured narrative. I think it really comes from the live show aspect. It's very punchy because, again, it's a performance. And if you're looking for sort of the slow meandering deconstruction of society, this book isn't it. There, There isn't too much of like a call to action or anything. They're really just putting their experiences and the information in your hands, and then you get to decide what to do with it. Maybe you relate to it, maybe you don't. So that is the book that I read, Gender Failure by Coyote and Spoon. Uh, I would highly recommend it. It is very good. As is the nature of everything, 
I didn't necessarily relate to all of it, but that wasn't the point because I related to enough of it. Ivan Coyote in particular has done some more recent stuff. So Gender Failure came out, I believe, in 2014. But uh, they've also written, I know they wrote Rebent Center in um, 2019 and some some things after that. They've done quite a bit of writing. So I've heard good things about them sort of in a general in a general sense, if you wanted to check out some of their other works. And as far as queer video games go, quite frankly, this might be a hot take. Video games are part of gay culture, whether folks like it or not. So in terms of shout outs, bear with me. I think maybe one of my favorite queer games out there is called Monster Prom. (laughs) Monster Prom is an indie dating sim. As with dating sims, there are so many opportunities to pursue whoever you like. Um, And most of the time, they'll all be attracted to you, which is great because it's not like the real world. And so Monster Prom is a particularly tropey, humorous game as well, which it feels weird to sort of connect that back to gender failure, but they do do have some of the same biting humor sometimes. You get to choose your pronouns. The characters are complex. It's beautiful. So maybe you didn't expect that one because normally I play AAA games. But sometimes, sometimes little indie dating sims are the way to go. Thank you. Back to you, Mark. Thank you, Gabriel. It's always interesting to hear about some of these books with like more personal reflections and the individual personality coming through. So it sounds like it was like that a lot with gender failure. So I guess I will go next to stick with my demand that we go with the same order as the existential question. So for my book, I read Dead Collections by Isaac. Fellman. And in our story, we follow the character of Saul Kitts. And he is a, an archivist living in Northern California for works for a nonprofit archival society. He's recently out as transgender to his colleagues and has found a sense of identity and self that he is comfortable uh, living with and presenting to uh, his colleagues and those rest in his life. But there is one part of Saul's life that he's only open to his supervisor and human resources about. And that is that he is also a vampire. And in this book, that has a rather unique take on vampirism because in this universe, vampirism is basically a medical condition. So like a recently emerging kind of disease or condition that's very little known about the medical community is very stumped by it. And Sol first became a vampire after an unfortunate accident in the archive where he got pricked by the back of a pin and became infected with tetanus. Unfortunately, his case of tetanus became potentially fatal. So the doctors essentially intentionally infected him with the vampirism virus in order to bring about a sort of state of undeadness, so to speak, because essentially he would have died from the tetanus otherwise. So he consented to becoming a vampire in order to avoid death. And it's sort of interesting how Saul's life has changed as a result of this affliction. As his way of life is greatly disrupted, he must now go to like a late night blood transfusion clinic. As this is the medical community's way of avoiding having vampires feeding on live humans. They essentially give them like fresh blood transfusions that uh, allow them to avoid having to feed on live people. He attends a vampire support group at night where he hears about other vampires and identifies in their lives. And perhaps most difficult of all is maintaining his job at the archive because he's a vampire, so he cannot go out into the sun. So in the mornings, he can't go out. and the night, he can't leave work. So 
He has essentially been living in his office in secret, a decision that will come back with consequences later on in the story. So it's sort of like an interesting take I found on the vampire trope, very much set in the modern world. It has like a sort of modern medical kind of aspect to it. It's not um, set in like a fantasy realm. It's not, it tries to make it into like almost like a realistic kind of condition rather than like a fantasy, unhuman kind of uh, phenomenon. So I found that kind of interesting. And through Sol's work in the archives, his life is further changed when one day a donor named Elsie arrived. She was to come to donate the papers and correspondence and other materials of her recently deceased wife, Tracy Britton, who, and this Tracy Britton character is sort of like an in-universe, semi-famous writer. She's best known for a 1990s sci-fi TV series, Feet of Clay. And as it turns out, a, a young teenage soul was an enormous fan of this series and was a, like into the fandom and everything of this series. And he immediately feels a connection with Elsie personally through their shared love of this uh, sci-fi and fandom kind of series. And within the story, fandom kind of plays an interesting role because Sol reflects on his own feelings towards a, a male character in the series named Shulk and his sort of own writing of fanfics of Shulk and Zadok, the male-male kind of romance between these characters um, and how this sort of fandom sort of built into a sense of self as he cosplayed as one of the characters as a male character before he was out as transgender and how this his relationship to the series kind of shaped his own personal identity in many ways. And Elsie herself also kind of has a connection to the archival and fandom community because she's a, on the board of directors of Archive of Our Own, the Internet Fan Fiction Archive. So there's a lot of like fandom archival kind of memory preservation kind of aspects in this series or this book I should say that I found rather interesting Sol kind of has like a line where he says like oh this stuff is sort of treated as ephemeral but you go back in the back of the archive I got 10 boxes of ephemeral material back there so it kind of has like this kind of a memory ephemeral connection there as Sol sort of becomes more connected to LC he starts to question like his professional ethics because uh, they sort of begin to go closer and closer it becomes more of like a relationship and it sort of developed in like complicated manner that I'm not going to spoil the end, how this develops. So it kind of has like this complication of Sol's professional ethics, his feelings towards Elsie, as well as his work in the archives. And Elsie also has her own complicated feelings because of her wife's recent passing, how she has still has feelings towards her, which doesn't want to necessarily move on. And even though she is bisexual, her own development of gender and expression has very closely developed with her relationship to her wife. So now if she used to be in a relationship with a man, how does that sort of change her sense of expression and feelings about herself uh, is also explored throughout the book. I think if you like books that have a lot of like fandom, humor, and these kinds of complicated relationships based on the character's own sort of sense of self and identity and personal development, then I think you might also like Dead Collections. Has anyone ever seen In the Flesh, the TV show? I have not. Okay, because it almost reminds me of that. It's also uh, one of the ones where it's actually called, it, it does the same kind of idea with instead of vampirism, it's zombies. And so it's sort of like the idea of being a zombie as something that is um, a chronic condition that is sort of manageable. And it's like a really like weirdly realistic take on it. And then obviously very much both used as a metaphor for queerness, but also... Um, the character like the main character is queer and so it almost reminds me of that except for that sounds like more fun than in the flesh because in the flesh is a great show but you're like crying every episode and it's just just a long tearjerker really and so 
one sounds more fun. But I, I'm always curious whenever I see stories try to take these um, like almost like folkloric creatures and then sort of say, okay, but what if what happens if the, we're sort of treating them a bit more seriously? What happens if we want to poke at them maybe as a metaphor for something else in life in the same way that old sci-fis and even sci-fis now often will do with like aliens. It's like the second you said it in space, we're not talking about Vietnam. So I I always find it's really interesting when stuff like that comes up. Yeah, it definitely has like that sort of, um, it takes up like some of the tropes and tries to invert them in some ways. Like I feel like, especially through their relationships, Saul and Elsie sort of like explore those kinds of things in many ways as they sort of like their own personal feelings towards one another, as well as there was another interesting aspect of the book where some of the chapters are even written, like their archival materials, like some are like correspondence, like letters and notes, others are like screenplays, like things like that. So it sort of plays with the form of the novel as well in terms of like archival materials and the sort of sci-fi screenplays and things like that. So it definitely tries to have fun with it while also being serious at times. So sort of in the latter half of the novel, it does get somewhat serious, but I don't want to spoil that too much. Alrighty then, I guess we will now have Kareen. Every once in a while when you are watching a movie, something magical happens where a movie becomes so much more than a movie. And every once in a generation, a film or a line or an actor becomes immortal. It casts a spell over the entire world. Lines or actors or roles become so ingrained and enmeshed in the culture that they live on far longer than the film. If we think back to old Hollywood, lines like, frankly, dear, I don't give a damn, or Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, or here's looking at you, kid. They have made their actors and their moments something so much more than human. There's a moment, sometimes in a film or a movie or in a television show, where an actor becomes a star. When they go from being a person who just plays a part to be someone who is adored, worshipped, they become something more than human. Something really magical happens in a movie theater or on the screen that transcends a regular human experience. It is magical. And in the book that I am talking about, the author takes that one step further. What if movie making was magical? What if in their move west into California and Hollywood, these studio executives made a deal with the devil or with the old fae of the land? No one's quite sure, but blood magic was involved so that they are able to perform great feats of glamour. And I'm not talking about a fancy dress or jewelry. I'm talking about that ancient, frightening glamour. The ability to change someone's appearance. The ability to make them magnetic. To intoxicate other people with how they look. To draw them in. 
what if instead of the regular studio contracts of old Hollywood, you made a real contract? One of those ancient blood pacts that for three years, the studio would own you and everything you do. You'd have to be very careful about your words when you made this contract or else it could cost you 10 years of your life. It could cost you your firstborn child or it could cost you your feet. And in this world, knowing all this, Luli Wei still wants to be a star. Even though as she looks around the studio, she sees the dried up husks of human beings whose life force has been slowly sucked out of them by the camera and transformed by magic into movies. She sees all of this, doesn't care. She wants to be a star. She wants to be luminous, adored. And maybe even more than that, Luli wants to belong somewhere. She has always felt out of place. Growing up in Hungarian Hill, she is one of the few uh, Chinese families in the area. Knowing that she is a lesbian, she doesn't really fit in with anyone's expectations of what she's going to do with her life. But on the screen, the first time that she is discovered, delivering laundry at the right place at the right time, only to be grabbed by a director on the shoulder and put in front of the camera, as soon as that light hits her, she can feel its power. And she wants that power. And she will do nothing and sacrifice everything to get it. This is the book by Nevo called Siren Queen. This is, I would say, a magical realism rejigging of the story of Anna Mae Wong, who was the first uh, Chinese-American movie star in the 1930s. So this takes place in a pre-code Hollywood that kind of explores that gritty underside of old Hollywood that we don't tend to see underneath all of the glamour and the glitz and the stars. It looks at those studio heads, transforming them from the egotistical megalomaniacs that they were into actual devouring monsters. It is a wonderful combination, kind of like of a Seanan McGuire book with the podcast, you must remember this. So if you have an interest in the lives of the stars in the 1930s and the 1920s, if you have an interest in a oh, in an ambitious, powerful story about an actress making her own way, um, if you like if you like kind of the fairy tales of old and not the sweet saccharine stories of girls getting to, you know, try on different shoes and then you get a husband or sweet stories about doing the right things. We're talking old stories, old stories about blood and sacrifice and death. Stories about the old fairies, not the gentle kind. And I would suggest you pick up Nevo's Siren Queen. Thank you, Corrine. Listen, that kind of has that interesting, like old Hollywood, like the studio system where they kind of controlled your life in many ways. It's kind of taking like in a more fantasy kind of direction. Sounds interesting in that kind of way as like the historical 
ties to it. Yes. And if you're deeply interested in like Greta Garbo and like Marlon Dietrich and her sewing circle, like it's all there. It's all there. Sounds even more interesting now. Okay. So I guess we'll close out now with Virginia. All right. Um, so for this prime month, um, I have chosen Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield. This is a story of a married couple, Leah and Miri. Leah is a marine biologist. She's currently on one of her regular trips in a submarine to do her research. And these trips usually last about a week, but it's been more than that and she still hasn't come back. So Miri tried to call the sensor to try to find out what's going on. And they're like, oh, well, maybe their project just took a little bit longer. We're not really sure what happens. As the days go by, she will get some calls from the center and they will give her like an update, which is really no update because they don't really know what happened. And then they stop calling and Miri tried to connect with them. Her messages will go straight to the voicemail and they're not really telling her what is happening to her wife. Then one day she finally got a hold of them and they said, you know, we, we've lost communication with the submarine we think they are lost and we have to presume that they are dead. Miri can't believe it. She can't move on. She, she's just going through these motions of life, a life that now doesn't include her wife and she doesn't know what to do. Three months later, she got a call from the center. The submarine has resurfaced. Leia is still alive. Leia is back and she'll be right back like in just a couple of days. And Miri, of course, is overjoyed. She's so glad to hear that her wife is still alive. All that grieving, all that like unnecessary, they're all unnecessary. She, she didn't have to do any of that. But the layer that came back is not the layer that she knows. Leia doesn't talk anymore. Leia doesn't eat. The only thing that she would drink is salt dissolved in water. Every day, she spent most of her time in a bathtub, submerged in salt water. Her skin will turn translucent. And if she doesn't sit in water, then strange things happen to her body. Something happened to Leia during that trip. And Miri is desperate to find out what happened and what happened to her wife because her wife is not the same. And it's almost like she has to prepare to lose her wife one more time. Told in alternating chapters, we got Miri describing what the present is like after Leia's return and how that reminds Miri very much of her mother, the time that she spends taking care of her dying mother who doesn't know who Miri is anymore because of her dementia. This is kind of how that feels because Leia doesn't seem to remember her anymore. And then the chapters that we get from Leia about what she experienced during that fateful trip. Through the flashbacks, we learn about their life together when they were dating, when they got married. And it's all these memories that Julie Armfield is so good at painting and giving us this really solid picture of what their life was like before. Simple things like whenever Miri start questioning, like, why do you like me, Leia? You're so amazing. Why would you like me? And, and she start feeling like, doubtful about this and and when 
ever lay a sense that she would make Miri look her right into the eye and say, uh, Miri, you are the kindest person I have ever met. And you know what? I know like six or seven people. Trust me. And that's the kind of like really almost, it's really intimate, really realistic, but almost mundane kind of details that that helps us understand their relationship, that they're two people who have found one another. There's no like, like extraordinary events. There's no like whirlwind romance. It's just two people that fell in love. And it's all these details that make us feel how devastating this loss is when they don't seem to know each other anymore and that one of them is gone. The book reminds me very much in tone and also in spirit of uh, like my my number two most favorite book last year, which is This Thing Between Us by Gus Morano. Please read it. Um, it also feels very much like Ian Reed's Foe, which I also love to pieces. And in all these books, they are, they are, they're definitely kind of like horror. They're like literary horror. And, and they drew me in initially because of sort of like a strange premise, right? You know, we have like somebody missing and then they now reappeared. Or in the other book, you know, like you have like haunted smart speakers. Like all of these are like weird premise, but like a good horror usually makes you almost forget why you're there in the first place because it gives such a meditation of of grief, of relationships, of marriage, which is apparently a subject that I do like to read. I think sort of like Mark who said in his episode where he likes relationship stories, not romance, because I hate those and I hate it when it invades my books, but a relationship story a story about marriage and, and exploring that concept but what it means to be in a marriage, what it means to the individual. I apparently love to explore that it, as long as it comes in some weird, strange, surreal, like weird package, then that is good for me. Um, so I, I really, really enjoyed this one because it's such a good literary horror. And I think what Julie Armfield is able to do is that she found the right perfect balance between that literary side of things where it's very like, you know, well-written, but also like got lots of metaphors and lots of symbols, but she never let the story or the characters get lost in them. Because this one has all the ocean sea metaphors that you will ever need in your life. But it it shows so much skill and restraint when, when she can like just stop at just the right amount so that you still understand what it is she's trying to do that she's not so in love with her like literary conceits and words that that they forgot to tell the story which is sometimes you know you find in some books but she just does it like perfectly and it's also the kind of horror that I love because I love the type that you don't need to see the monster because nothing you can show me is more scary than what I'm already imagining because of your words, because your words are so good in creating that mood and creating those images in my mind. And in, in the chapters with Leia, you know, we learn what happened, kind of what happened to her and, and the two other researchers. And as they lose control of the submarine and they lost contact with, you know, their center as like the communication no longer works and they keep sinking farther and farther down they talk about like how they hear whisperings or that they can smell burned meat. And sometimes these sensations are shared and sometimes only one of them can hear it or they can smell it. So you're never quite sure whether, is it real? Is it in the head? And you never quite see sort of what it is at the end. And that is what I love about sort of horror that does that. Because again, I don't need to see it because it is scary enough. So our wives under the sea, a book for readers who are looking to 
really intensely engaged with a story. If you want something light, if you want something, you know, for the summer that you can just put down, this is not it. Do not read this because this is not that. But if you're a reader who wants to feel everything, if you want to see your heart being clenched in in someone else's fist and it's being squeezed every single minute throughout the book, then this is the type of book that you would love. And so this is Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield. Thank you, Virginia. It's definitely a very interesting kind of relationship story about how you can sort of begin to know someone in a way that no one else knows someone. Like those little mundane kind of things you mentioned that were those that can be what makes your relationship special in some ways at times. So I guess that's wraps up this week's episode. So thank you again for me, Virginia, Gabriel, and Kareen. Hope to see you again another week. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then... Keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.